Please turn with me to John's Gospel, to chapter 8. Tonight my title is Consciences Convicted, and our text is found in verse 9. I think this is a very familiar account. It is a wonderful account. It's not a healing miracle. It's not a miracle over nature. It's not a parable. It is the account of one woman and how her sin was dealt with not by law, but by wonderful grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is far greater than the law. John's Gospel, chapter 8. I don't know which Bible you have before you tonight. If you have the ESV or the NIV or some other Bible other than the King James, you may find that these verses are missing. You may find them in a different place in the Bible, or at the very least a footnote with an asterisk, putting a question mark and a shadow over these verses. There's no need for that. There's very good evidence to say that these were in the majority of the manuscripts, over 5,000 manuscripts, and the fragments of the Bible which gathered together give us the evidence for what was and is God's written word. These very verses, they are referred to outside the Bible in historic literature. They've been loved down through the centuries, but particularly in the last hundred years, there were two particular scholars that put a doubt underneath these verses. They have always been in what's called the received consensus text from which the Bible has been translated into very many languages across Europe down through hundreds of years. And when you look at the words which John uses in the rest of his Gospel, you see that these are what we might say as being Johannine, John's writing, John's human fingertips wrote these words. And they reveal a very precious aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that when I read these verses, I see the same Christ as I see in the rest of the Gospels. And they reveal a very radical view of marriage compared to that which was prevailing in the Roman Empire. Women were treated awfully in those days. They were sold for less than a loaf of bread. They were treated with contempt. But Christ radically says a woman is precious, valuable, to be treasured, and her body is to be taken only under solemn oath, recognized by the laws of the land in love and in lifelong commitment. No wonder women loved Christ. No wonder the early church was dominated by women. 
and down through the years of time, we see a church where there was many more women than men. And the church today, if you look at it internationally, there's many more women than men. No wonder, because Christ loved women when society hated women and treated them as an asset, as property, as worth less than a loaf of bread. And so we come and read verses which no wonder some wanted to remove because here we see a woman who's in a very difficult strait and the Lord comes and shows wonderful compassion and love to her as I hope to show you tonight. We don't need to doubt. The narrative is authentic. It's the same Christ that we see here as on the other pages of Scripture. It's entirely consistent. And so we read in verse 1 that the Lord Jesus had gone to pray, he'd gone aside. It was early in the morning. Maybe there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. We don't entirely know. But it says, verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. That's where he went to preach very often. That's where he taught so much of his ministry was there or by the shores of Galilee. It was still early in the morning. And it says all the people, not literally all, sometimes when we read the word all, it doesn't mean all, but all kinds, all types, all the people that would normally go there, something like that, all the people, a large number of people came unto him. By now, the Lord Jesus was surrounded by people when he taught. And so those who had an agenda, they come and they sat down and he taught them. And verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring one woman, no man, not the man who may have taken this dear woman and treated her badly. We don't know who was involved and why and how and where and when, but we know that she was caught, what we would say today, red-handed. They describe it as in the very act. There's something much more in that term. In the very act, they're inferring that sin is much worse if it's physical than if it's in thought. But that's not what the Lord Jesus says, as we shall see. She's been, as we would say, caught in the act. Presumably he was as well. We don't know whether he was taking her by force. We don't know the circumstances, but we know that she had been found out. Probably him as well. But they bring her their warped view of sin and of their own self-righteousness condemned this woman, but evidently not the man. We see here in these verses, we're going to see such a compassion. Christ will stoop down and be below her level 
while they stood looking down at her. Just imagine the scene, there's many people there. In the courts of the temple it's dusty, there's many people coming in, going out, doing what they normally did every day, and there they put her in the middle. They make a public example of her. Every eye is gawping at this dear woman. When we think of the importance that the Lord Jesus put on women, we see that the gospel was unfolded in New Testament times to women, Mary, Elizabeth, Anna. We think of how often the Lord Jesus would visit Mary and Martha's house. They were his close friends. We think of those women who paid and supported him in his ministry, women that were well-to-do, one from even the temple court of Herod who left with much risk to her life. We think of Mary Magdalene, rescued from seven demons. And who did the Lord choose to reveal himself to in his risen state? Women. Women who were shunned, but never by Christ. And this woman was no exception. Many religions... Across the world today, women are not even allowed to be counted. Women are to be left at home. Women are to be looked down on. And what goes on behind the scenes is despicable. But this woman is put in public and everybody will gaze and gawp at her in a culture that shunned and treated women badly, Christ does nothing like that. He does the very opposite. Let's think of this woman. How did she feel in that very moment? Just try to project your own heart, your own thinking, just for a few minutes, into how that woman would have felt. Every eye is looking on her. I give you a tiny, tiny thought. When I was a child, if I was at school, I hated standing at the front of the class. I hated having my name mentioned, particularly my surname. I hated people talking about me. And I would go bright purple, red. Think of this woman. She knows what she's done. She had probably done it many times before, from what we can deduce. And now, every eye is watching, every ear is listening, every heart knows what this woman has done in secret. How did she feel? Undone. Guilty. Condemned. Shamed. She felt there was no way out. What she knew for sure was that a death sentence hung above her because these men evidently had told her that the law of Moses said she should be stoned to death. And that's what they were now seeking, the death 
sentence to be enacted upon her life. There was no way forward. She looked at death. I don't know whether you're empathetic as a person, naturally. If somebody is going through some sickness and they're going through a serious hospitalized treatment, it's not always easy to know what they're feeling when they feel all their strength gone and they've been subjected to pain because they needed to for the treatment's sake. We can try to put ourselves in their shoes, in their feet, but we won't really understand unless we've been through something very similar ourselves. But we can try. What about somebody who's been bereaved? We can try if it's been our experience, somebody we loved, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister. We can try. That's what empathy is about. It's called projected empathy. You put yourself into somebody else's clothes and shoes. And you try to feel what they feel. That's good. That's right. The Lord Jesus did that the whole time. And in fact, he commands us to weep with those that weep and mourn with those that mourn. But what about this crowd? It seems they were baying for blood. It seems the men who brought her before the crowd, they had abject contempt for her, looking through their nostrils, as we say, looking in contempt. This woman in the very act. Well, they're going to lay a trap. They're not really interested in the woman at all. They certainly weren't interested in the man. They're not really interested in her sin. They're interested in Christ. And they're interested in having him arrested. And this is all a wheeze, a trap. They want to catch him red-handed, not her. And this is the trap. The law of Moses said very clearly that if a woman, if a man was taken in adultery, they were to be stoned. There was a death sentence. What does that teach us today? Not necessarily that we should have that in our country, but it says marriage should be lifelong. It's not to be broken. And there is a very serious consequence to any who break the seventh commandment. Well, that was one way. But of course, the Jews were not really ruling Palestine at the time. It was under Roman rule, and these religious leaders knew that if he said that this woman should be stoned, he could be accused of insurrection. Nobody was allowed to enact the death sentence other than the Romans. That's why Christ was to be crucified and why Pilate had to hold that trial over the Lord Jesus. Which would he choose? Some say he copped out. No, he didn't. It's very evident from these verses that he believed and he enforced that Moses' law was binding and that she had broken the commandment to not commit 
adultery. In fact, if you read in Matthew 5, 27, 28, he says these words, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He was enforcing the law. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. They had a very narrow view of sin. That sometimes is our habit. We think that thou shalt not kill just literally means don't take a dagger or a gun. But Christ is saying every sin is a family. It should be considered in the broadest possible way and context. It includes deed, word, thought, intention. The Lord Jesus is looking at this woman and he knows that she's broken the law. He's not condemning her because she's condemned already. The law hangs above all of us. All of us know deep down in our hearts that God's law says guilty. Every single one of God's laws has been broken by every single one of us. And there's no exceptions. Oh no, this woman was guilty. Christ knew that. That's not what this means. Their trap, he was not going to fall into that, but he answers it in the most wonderful, wonderful way. He's not going to give a trap for them, but he's going to test them. He's going to ask them a question. What a probing question. He puts his head down, he gets down to the ground, he writes in the dust, doodling in the dust, it's been called. What did he write? We'll come to that. Why did he write? Why did he stoop down? Did he not want to look at them? Was he trying to ignore them? No. He could read their hearts. He knew just what they were thinking. But maybe he was trying to diffuse a very tense situation. He was trying to communicate in a non-verbal way. And he stoops down and he writes with his finger, usually doodling. Some of you might be doing that now on a piece of paper. Is unimportant. You draw a picture of the preacher or the hymn numbers. Was Christ doodling? No, I don't think so. The evidence is that whatever he wrote twice, or he wrote, he stood up, he wrote, that was what caused their consciences to be convicted. Some say, I've read 16 different explanations. I won't give you them all. Some say he wrote the Ten Commandments. I think that's unlikely. That's a lot of writing. Some say he wrote out the Seventh Commandment. That's possible. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Some say he wrote out verses from the Old Testament. One favorite idea, and you might like to turn to it, is Jeremiah 17, verse 13. This is a favorite, favorite of the Puritans. It has a very compelling argument when you read the verse. It seems to make sense, but there's no evidence for it. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the fountain of the living waters. I think that's a very good suggestion. But there's another one that stands out to me. Some say he wrote the names of some of those religious leaders. I don't know what they were called. Joseph, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. We know some of the names of who was on the Sanhedrin, but maybe he wrote John, adulterer. Joseph, thief. I think that's a very compelling explanation. Look at what it says. They thought that he wasn't listening. Verse 6, it's in italics, it's been added in. Notice it says the finger. Some people say, just to add to those theories, the same finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments wrote in the dust. That's a nice thought. But they think he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking, what are you going to do, what are you going to do with this guilty woman that we caught in the very act. The Lord Jesus lifts up his head. I heard you. I know what's in your heart. I know what you're up to. And here's the words. Just think of how this would have gone down in the crowd. He that is without sin among you let him first cast a stone at her. You see what he was saying? Nobody can issue the death sentence unless you're a perfect person. And the only perfect person standing in your midst is me, not you. Who made you a judge over this woman? He was asking the question, are you really righteous? Are you righteous enough to stand before this woman and point the finger and blame her for what may not have been her fault? And even if it was, look at your life. Are you going to cut the string on the knife that hangs above her head? Are you going to cause her to come to death? And one by one, starting with the most elderly gentleman in his 90s, and he goes out, and then the next, and the next, 
and the next. And he stoops down again and carries on writing. He's on her level. In fact, he's in the dust. The humility of Christ to come down to earth, to be on the earth of the earth, earthy. And when they heard it, verse 9 is our text, they were convicted. Let him who is without sin, which of you tonight, which of you and me, can say we have no sin. So often we look at other people's lives. Look at that man. Look at that woman. Look at the way they dress. Look at the way they talk. Look at the way they live their lives. And look at me. Is that us? That's self-righteousness. Look at your own heart tonight. Look at your own life. Don't look at anybody else's. Listen to the words of Christ. Let him who is without sin look at another's life and pick up the first stone and throw it. And none of them could lift a hand. And they go out one by one. And here's the Lord Jesus. Just as in John 4 with the woman at the well, he finds himself alone with a woman, something that wasn't really acceptable in the culture of the time, but Christ didn't mind earthly, man-centered culture. He broke all the conventions and he speaks to this woman and says, where are they? Where have they gone? Who is condemning thee? The law, the law condemned her. The woman says, no man, Lord. And so the Lord Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. That doesn't mean I'm going to overlook adultery. It doesn't mean that Moses' law doesn't apply. It means that I'm going to show you grace before the requirements of the law come down upon your life. Neither do I condemn thee. And here's the words that we need to dwell at the close. They're so simple. They're all one syllable in English. Go. Get up. Get away from here where your accusers stood. Listen to my words and obey. But you must repent. Go and sin no more. That's the gospel. The law hangs above me like a sword of Damocles. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And I've got nothing to say. I have to leave the building. But Christ would give grace, would show grace. Christ would say to her, I could condemn you, but I'm not going to condemn you. You are condemned. Go in faith. Go in obedience. And if you go, 
And if you show your obedience and your newfound given faith by sinning no more, you are a child of God. You've been cleansed. You've been washed. You show it with your new life, your new heart. Go and sin no more. Let's turn as we close to verse 59. Another reason why we know this is the word of God and these 11 verses were meant to be there. Look at verse 59. This is very significant. Then the people took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself. First they wanted to cast stones at the woman. Now they want to throw stones at him. They want him dead. But Christ's power, his divinity, takes him through the midst of them. And so he passes by. Do you see God as God in Christ and God as man? We see his divine character and qualities and we see his human qualities. We see law, we see grace. And this poor woman, shamed and mocked and red-handedly caught, and the grace of Christ comes and says, if you go and sin no more, all of your sin, its penalty, its condemnation, has been taken from you this very day. What about your sin? Your sin in the widest possible definition. God's definition. How do you see your sin tonight? Do you go from this place and you desire to sin no more? Go. Go to him. Confess your sin. Turn away from your past. And the Lord Jesus will cover you with grace and mercy. And not as you deserve and I deserve tonight. May it be so. Amen.